Welcome to episode number 84, Mania and the Mind. I am your host, as always, Damon Soka. This last week I was contacted by a listener through email and asked if I would cover the subject of mania, as in mania and bipolar disorder. I appreciated her contact and reminding me that I really needed to readdress this subject. Now, if there are any listeners to this podcast who have questions or would like me to cover a particular topic, my email is always open. Uh, the email is on the front page of the podcast, or it is dtsocha at gmail.com. Now, as, as always, if you find that you like these episodes, pass along to someone you know. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we are going to talk about the mind, but not in our usual sense of depressed or anxious minds or encounters. We're going to talk about the mind from the perspective of mania the other half of bipolar disorder. Now, while many people can empathize with the first half of bipolar disorder, which is the depression, and those anxious moments and depressed feelings, at least in the sense that they have experienced them in short bursts, mania, on the other hand, is something that is far more difficult difficult to comprehend for those who have not experienced it. When we talk of mania, it's more than just a good day or even a great day. Mania is the amplifying of the mind's capabilities and processes, something akin to continuously adding gasoline to an already burning fire. Mania is an accelerant for the mind, and with it comes a few benefits and a host of complications, which of course we're going to discuss today. Now we've discussed the working of the mind on many occasions during these podcasts, and that has included the idea that while science knows some really good data about the gray matter inside our skull and has some understanding in the inner workings of the brain, the mind is still more of a black hole than an organized planet. What we know about the mind, we've learned about activity based on various outside measurement tools, such as like an MRI, electrodes that are able to record the electrical activity in the mind, In psychology, certainly, again, in psychology and psychiatry, they've added behavioral models and really a lot of good data regarding the mind. But even with all of that knowledge, to say that one person or even one area of study understands the inner working of the brain is really to be ignorant of the science and what we have left to learn. And that is even more true when you consider that we have a spiritual brain. Now, I'm sure that there are good researchers out there who might say otherwise, but I think really that the data speaks for itself. The mind is still full of questions. Now, if we look at the mind generally from the perspective of the gospel, it can be reasonably assumed that we possess a spiritual brain, similar to our mortal one. Now, exactly how similar, we don't know. The spiritual brain does exist, and it is somehow molded into an interface with the mortal brain. Although, exactly how this interface happens has never been revealed. And who knows if we would even be able to fully understand how that interface works, at least in our mortal condition. However, there are some things we do know about that spiritual brain that are actually very important to our topic today. The first comes from President Oaks uh, during a previous conference and speaking about premortality when he stated that in premortal life, we saw the end from the beginning. Now, your exact interpretation of the words end from the beginning could mean various things, what I think can be assumed as certain are two things. One, we retained all of our knowledge up to our journey to mortality in our spiritual brains. Two, we had significant knowledge about what we would, what would happen in our lives, 
and our trials. So our memory was not solely a past life up to mortality, but also future possibilities. Maybe not in detail, we don't really know, but overall we had a great knowledge about what we were going to face and experience in this life. Now, adding to this idea of understanding what we would face, President Nelson noted that we were trained before this earth for every experience we would encounter. Now, again, what trained means in the sense of spiritual learning is somewhat open. And of course, that was paraphrased from President Nelson, but it does present the case that we have significant knowledge about our trials in this life and training to go with it, locked somewhere in that spiritual brain. So with this understanding that our spiritual brains appear to contain far more information than our mortal brains and that we don't have access to that information, it can easily be seen that somehow, somewhere, our spiritual brain was given a form of amnesia as to what occurred before this life. Now, we call this amnesia a veil of forgetfulness. Now, there is no explanation as to how that is done and just that it exists. And it exists actually so that we can fully choose our path in mortality. Now, as we discuss this amnesia, there's an important concept that is probably very important to be understood. Not everything was spiritual was hidden from our mortal memory and our mortal brains. And we can actually access portions of that spiritual memory through the guidance of the Holy Ghost or the light of Christ. Now, this is true because it would make no sense to train us for this world if we were not going to remember or have access to the training. That training comes to us in the form of what we call, again, the light of Christ or our conscious, or as we obtain the gift of the Holy Ghost through the Holy Ghost. That knowledge does not seem to return to us like reading a book, or if we need access to it, we can just go take it down off the shelf. More often, it is a feeling in our mind, gut, our body, that tells us or indicates if we're acting according to correct principles or not that we've been taught. So we have a spiritual mind that speaks more in feelings than in words, that interacts with the mortal mind on a regular basis. And now that we've discussed this spiritual mind in general form and what we know, what do we really know about the mortal mind from the scriptures? One, we know it records everything in our lives in detail and stores it for an eventual forthcoming judgment of our behavior on this earth. Now, this is true even if we cannot recall any of those memories currently. Second, the mortal mind can be damaged both physically and mentally. We learned this in a couple of places, but we can assume from various healings talked about during the time of Christ that obviously it can be damaged both physically and mentally. However, we actually know the same from current science. A mind can be broken, either physically, mentally, or actually both. What is interesting about the interface of the two minds, the spiritual and the mortal, is that the recording of our lives is done both physically and spiritually in each mind. Meaning when we die, we do not forget anything about this life. We have a full history recorded in our spiritual brains. Now, when we talk about recordings in our brain and accessing those recordings, there's something unique about our brains and about them, those memories, we call them. We do not just record facts and figures. We record emotional context. We record pain, smells, tastes, what falls in our vision, hearing, and our touch. We are also able to rec recall things through those same smell, touch, taste, hearing, and our vision, singly or independently or 
in any combination, meaning we can remember just a particular voice or we can also remember faces and a voice that goes with it. Now, in addition to the physical senses, we record things through the emotional context in that we see events through emotions such as sadness, happiness, empathy, misery, and so forth. We also recall memories through the context. For instance, sad memories tend to return when we are sad. Happy memories tend to return when we are happy. And of course, in the mental illness state, depressive memories tend to turn when we are tend to return to us when we are depressed and mania memories tend to return to us when we are in mania. And it's interesting that not only can we recall things by emotional context, but by emotional context and senses. Our brains are actually very unique in this way. So why all this talk about the brain? Mania is all about the brain and its function. Mania can be far more difficult to explain to someone who really doesn't have bipolar. We do have depression-like and anxiety-like feelings throughout our normal life experience. Having a pop quiz in school, forgetting to complete an assignment, giving a presentation or a talk often brings forth similar feelings of anxiety. Maybe not to the depth as a disorder, but we understand those feelings. Death, again, often brings forth depression-like symptoms. Mania really does not have an equal when it comes to normal life. Mania is not necessarily increased happiness or joy. Mania accelerates and drives the mind in its capacity. Instead of one's normal processing speed, it's like running your mind on overdrive constantly. Faster than you've ever felt it run. Thoughts flow through your mind at incredible speeds. Now, this actually creates one of the symptoms of mania, which is called skipping or mental skipping. The mind is running so fast, the process in the brain just doesn't keep up with the thoughts. And so to process the information, the mind begins skipping from one subject to another, picking up where it left off each time. Meaning that I could be talking about fishing one minute, and then a story I heard from a friend another minute, a book I read in another minute, and one of my children in another minute without context as I move from one subject to another. Meaning I would stop mid-thought and then start where I left off with a previous thought and subject without any context or note that I'm moving to another subject. Now, in order for good communication to occur, one needs context as to what is being discussed. When you move from subject to subject without context, the person with whom you are talking can become quickly confused and typically asks where are you, what's going on. Most interesting thing is that the person who is skipping doesn't feel the confusion. And to them, the discussion is one continuous flow. You don't feel the need for context. When the mind ramps up to this mania speed, all types of ideas actually begin to flow in the mind. Many creative persons have admitted to having bipolar disorder or have been diagnosed with it. And one of the reasons is the creative creativity found in the mania side of the equation. And, of course, this is one of the benefits. Now, an accelerated mind and bursts of creativity really makes it sound as though mania can be a beneficial experience. It is true that mania contains many, let's call them addictive experiences and emotions. But there exist significant problems that accompany those feelings that bring forth the creativity. One of those feelings is a significant reduction in inhibitions, or what I like to call feeling bulletproof. Feeling bulletproof or without inhibitions is wonderful, but can cause terrible problems for members of the church. Mania does actually have a few downsides. 
and presents significant problems when it really comes to being a member in the Church of Jesus Christ. The first problem with mania is that you don't have control of it, meaning you can't turn it on and off. It's always on when it's there. You can't slow down, can't stop thinking. Sometimes you can't even concentrate, sleep, or rest. Most people with mania sleep just very few hours a day, and this quickly wears down the body and mind. Just because the mind has been accelerated doesn't mean the body and mind all of a sudden have an ability to handle the extra strain. Mania can quickly accelerate the body from enjoyable to irritating to outright unpleasant. When you don't have control of the thought patterns and can't slow down the processes, the mind actually begins to break down and have problems. The mind needs sleep. It needs time to process. And sleep is that time that it uses to rejuvenate, regenerate, and seemingly process the day's activities into longer-term memory. It also uses this time to regenerate the necessary natural steroids of the body. So many things actually happen when you rest the body. And science has discovered more recently, even more recently, how valuable sleep and resting the body and mind is for mental and physical health. Basically, mania runs your mind and body to the very extensive capacity and beyond. And the body really begins to break down mentally, emotionally, and physically. This breakdown affects all aspects of the body, including memory, energy, cognitive ability, inhibitions, irritability, anger, and a host of normally, uh, also a host of normal habitual activities that the brain uses. Now, I've discussed habits or the as routines that really don't need to run through the process or in the mind anymore. Meaning we we don't really have any lo- we have no longer need to think about them and process them. They come forth naturally, such as driving a car, brushing your teeth eating, and really a good portion of what you normally do throughout a day. Mania eventually has serious effects on those habits. And for me, and for many of us, my typical habits seem to fade away. And I was no longer scheduled or used many of those habits, although some were still there. For instance, my nightly routine was generally completely altered. My normal daily pattern of scheduled scheduling and keeping myself disciplined was entirely altered. My life was no longer really a set of good, healthy habits, but more of a free-flowing, inconsistent, unscheduled, somewhat uninhibited, never-ending run of events. One of the major concerns with mania comes from this discarding of these many patterns and habits, and that is difficulty sticking to a task or even concentrating on one particular thing. Now, while I could think of many wonderful creative things to do, I could rarely stick with a task that was routine in nature or even stick with a task very long. By the time I got to the project in my mind, my mind was already engaged in other thoughts and other projects. Mania for me was a mess of incomplete projects and actions. Everything was always half done and never complete. Now, mania causes serious problems with trying to complete routine, normal tasks and activities because the mind does not stop nor does it want to stop to concentrate on one singular action or event. It's always moving on to the next thing. Given the mental concerns with mania, it's very important to now talk a little bit about the mind and some of the things we started out discussing in this podcast. This is the kind of bulletproof part of the problem. Now, as I stated previously, our brains have spiritual feelings and indicators through the spirit that allow us to understand right from wrong and what we should be doing with our lives. We call these inhibitors as they inhibit action that would be harmful or wrong. 
Now, mania interrupts and overwhelms this spiritual communication to the mortal brain in that the hearing of the indicators of right and wrong become increasingly more difficult. It's like trying to hear a trickling stream through the sounds of a waterfall. The problem is that really everything feels right. It is difficult to feel those negative indicators that cause us to pause and to think about what we are doing before we do it, when your entire emotional state is one of euphoria and a natural high. The mind lacks the reality factor that we normally possess that dictates to us what is possible and what is not. The communication with the spiritual mind is often far more difficult during periods of mania. Now, this is not to say that we don't know what is right and what is wrong. Even when I was at my highest, I knew that theft, adultery, alcohol, drugs, and many other straightforward commandments were wrong. That doesn't go out of the mind. It is not difficult in the sense of rational understanding what is right or wrong. However, if there are gray areas in one's life about matters of the gospel, then mania will become a significant obstacle to keeping the commandments. That still small voice that teaches on a regular basis is far more difficult to hear, and even beyond hearing that voice, feeling sorrow for sin is actually also very difficult during mania. So two of the major walls for keeping us within the gospel territory can feel as though they have been moved or removed. Many people who suffer with mania in the church will suffer, will suffer with sinful behavior during their mania states. It is not that they have suddenly decided that living the gospel is not worth their time. It is that they can't feel wrong. And those feelings of guilt that keep us from committing error are overwhelmed by a natural euphoria created in the brain and body. Now, many bipolar sufferers find living the gospel very difficult as mania regularly causes strains upon their covenant relationship with the Savior and the Father. They struggle to understand why they can't control what's happening during the mania episodes. And this is especially true once the feelings fade into the darker side of depression, because depression then accentuates all of the guilt that should have been felt much earlier. One can imagine how difficult life is to live when a part of you doesn't feel guilty, and the other part amplifies and magnifies that guilt out of control. Mania also tends to cause sins to repeat themselves, even when the person has recommitted and repented to keep their covenants. That is often the pattern that is frustrating and terrible about bipolar. Mania lowers inhibitions and feelings of guilt, and even lowers the ability to recall guilty moments and feelings which in turn causes patterns of sin to reoccur. And then depression causes either a recommitment or actually an eventual abandonment of the covenant because the person can see no way forward with the covenants based on the actions occurring in the mania. Now, bipolar can make living the gospel and repenting to feel impossible. The feelings of impossibility are discouraging in many ways and certainly not from the Lord. One never feels worthy to approach repentance when mania states of mind cause a continual loss of commitment. The never doing again, never doing it again part of repentance just doesn't seem like a plausible scenario. The level of discouragement and self-doubt can, can and often is immense for people who suffer and are members of the gospel with a sincere desire to progress. I have known many sincere individuals to simply walk away because they fully believe that they wouldn't they would not be able to overcome their problems. While walking away from the Lord may seem rational, seem may not seem rational, of course, 
The stress of the consistent loop of repentance and failure is significant in one's life and actually contributes to the worsening of the illness over time. Suffering members often take the approach that walking away from consistent gospel pressures and then doing their best without consistent church societal monitoring oversight simply feels like a pathway that is more manageable. Now, in discussing these, those problems with sufferers, many have addictive behaviors caused by mania and reduced inhibitions, and the addictive behaviors tend to lend themselves to chemical substances and dependencies and sexual encounters, simply not consistent with gospel behavior. Again, this is not a matter of their testimony for the individual, for the individual regarding the right and wrong of the behaviors, but a problem of changing brain chemistry and the abilities of mania to block spiritual communications and thoughts that would allow the action to be stopped. The real question in all of this is how does one who suffers with mania ever reconcile their problems sufficiently to regain, to remain within these covenants? Now, how do you suffer with bipolar disorder and remain a member of the Lord's church? I don't think that the answer to any question of mental illness in the gospel is easy, and bipolar is probably no different. But before I answer that question, there is at least one more concern that is relevant to the answer that should be addressed when talking about bipolar disorder. Individuals who suffer tend to have few real friends and persons that are close to them. Often, their over-exaggerated behaviors, both in mania and in depression, do not lend themselves to building strong relationships of trust. Many times, mania and or depression can cause and often does cause the loss of friendships and family due to behaviors of avoidance and addiction, the inability to hold down a job, getting involved in addictive problems, lack of communication, and inconsistent behaviors within the relationship break down communication lines and build barriers. Many times, those with bipolar disorder become isolated and without significant relationships in their lives. They may know people, but to be close to none of them. Bipolar disorder truly tends to lead to isolation and irrepressible loneliness. It is difficult to be a friend to someone whose actions, personality, life goals, and experience actually tend to differ from month to month. Good relationships need trust, accountability, communication, and consistent behaviors that build trust. And bipolar tends to break down each of these in various ways. And so the life of the bipolar sufferer tends to be lonely and isolated. Now, I could provide a much longer discussion about relationships, but that is, will suffice for this particular topic. So now to answer the question of how to live the gospel and by, with bipolar disorder. As I've stated, this really is not an easy task. I personally don't believe that someone who is not managing the disorder can live the gospel with any real regularity. If the disorder is left to run wild, then living the gospel may be near to impossible. The first part of my answer is that the illness needs to be under treatment and management before one can really truly commit to a covenant path. For many, if not for everyone, this will mean a discipline in life that will take time and medication to develop. Many sufferers find difficulty with this discipline because the natural highs of mania are really hard to let go. Depression is fairly easy to let go. But you can't let you cannot do one without the other. You cannot get rid of depression and leave the mania. And so the first step is treatment with professionals. 
I've discussed treatment on a number of occasions in these podcasts, and we'll note here that treatment is more than going to the doctor to get medication. Much more. One must build good eating and exercise and sleeping habits. One must have someone to aid them in their treatment journey that will be close to them most of the time. One must do everything to be consistent with life in general and reduce the stresses that accentuate the illness. While physical and mental treatment begins, spiritual gospel treatment must also take place. Bad habits and addictions must be discarded and repentance found. A warning about the discarding of bad habits and addictions and the whole process. It is going to take time and you are likely to have some failure. Understand that the Lord cares very much about you, that he understands failure. What he requires is that you continue to keep fighting. He can provide significant aid to you and help when you are trying, even when you are failing at times. However, when you give up partially or entirely, his abilities become limited by your actions. When the Lord told Simon Peter that he was that he was to forgive 70 times 7, the message was clear. If the person was fighting to overcome difficulties, then the Lord would forgive. However many times however many times necessary to allow for full repentance to occur. As long as the person genuinely desired to progress, the failure was not a concern. The Lord needs us to fight on our behalf, and then he can send forth the powers of heaven to help. Now, as part of this treatment, a person is going to have to have someone in whom they can confide, by their side, who is not judgmental, who is very patient, and one who, at least in some ways, understands the illness, or is willing to understand. This can be whomever is desired and does not need to be one of the person's current friends. It can be a leader, a minister brother or sister, a counselor, but it will need to be someone who can track progress and help when needed. Progress is going to be very important in the process. I understand that management of the illness and overcoming bad habits is something we very much desire and desire immediately, but it will be important to acknowledge small gains and wins in the processes. Acknowledgement or acknowledging small wins provides understanding and progress toward the eventual goal and provides for moments where we can see success from our side and from the help the Lord is providing. The process is likely to take time and it is important not to get too impatient with yourself, the process, the Lord, or the illness because that type of frustration or anger can lead to serious setbacks in the, pro- in the process. Do what you can, accept your failures, Acknowledge your small progress, continue repentance, and eventually you will find yourself where you want to be. My experience before and after the healing of this illness has taught me that patience is probably the key to success. And that means patience for every part of the process, including patience for yourself. Now may the Lord bless you in your efforts. Until next week.